You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. So if you're able, stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. Matthew chapter 12. So we're starting in verse 22 and uh, reading down to verse 37. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him, which the context tells us it's Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that the man could both speak and see. And all the crowds were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts... Jesus told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by the prince of demons, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone entering a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless what? He first ties up the strong man, and then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from the storeroom of good, And an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All righty. That's a doozy. Amen. <laughs> We've got uh, sort of a reputation here at Sojourn that uh, we don't, you know, bypass the hard texts of Scripture. We want to dive in and figure out what they mean. Well, I'm all for giving up that reputation. Amen. It's like, well, maybe you're not, but I am. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with jumping over Uh, this passage and so which we're not going to do so some of you are like all right finally get to figure out what this is and so this is what I want to do I got two kind of uh, sort of movements that I want to want to do this morning I just want us to uh, dive back into this text over these these 15 verses here and I want to try to answer a question what does Jesus mean when he says that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unpardonable sin what exactly within the context that we have it here in Matthew 12 does that mean? I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, misinterpretations, a lot of ways that people completely misunderstand 
what this passage is actually saying. So I'm going to do my best by God's grace to help us understand what does Jesus, Jesus mean when he says blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unpardonable sin. And then the second movement, I want to talk a little bit about what does that mean for us? All right, what do we do with this? So answer the question, what does this passage mean? It's a really difficult one. And then how do we kind of like apply this or what are we to do with this? And so um, as we work through this passage, here's the Here's sort of the lenses I want us to put on as we kind of work through this passage. And that is this. So if there was a book that was written about God that said this, The Seven Habits of God. So we got that one book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, blah, blah, blah. But if we had a book, Seven Habits of God, the number one habit of God is forgiveness. Our, God's, our God is merciful. He's compassion. He's He's full of forgiveness. The, the reflex of God is to forgive. The habit, the number one habit of God is to forgive. And that's what we saw in the front half of our service. This, this overwhelming desire to be merciful toward his people. And so that's the lens. And when we put this on, it actually is, is really surprising when we hear something like there's an unpardonable sin because God's nature and his reflex is to be forgiving. So that's kind of the lens I want us to put, our, put on as we work through this passage and understand that, that God leans in and longs to forgive you. He's not leaning back. He's not just kind of waiting. Ah, oh, I love it when they mess up. That's not the posture of God. The posture of God is to be merciful. So with that in mind, uh, let's dive in here. So if you see there in verse 22, this whole story begins with this uh, healing of a demon-possessed man. So Jesus cast out this demon. He's, he's uh, what do you say, he's deaf, and he's unable to speak. And so Jesus cast out the demon, heals this man fully to where now he's able to speak and he's able to see. And the crowds that are watching this miracle respond in kind of this, it's a sort of a belief, but there's still some skepticism in them. And the way it's written there, it's like, all right, man, maybe, possibly, this could be the son of David. And that's just, uh, you know, kind of like a lingo for the Messiah, that this could be the one that the prophets are, are speaking about, that this is finally the one that we've been longing for. So maybe, possibly, we're not fully sure, but we're really open-handed here that this could be the son of David. And then the religious leaders, which we've already saw in verse 14, are bent to get rid of Jesus. The conflict is kind of heightening here. They want to kill him. And so these religious leaders see the same miracle and they hear the crowds respond that maybe this is the son of David and they say, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. The, the reason why he's able to do these miracles is because he's coming from Satan. That he's able to do these good things by the power of the demons, by the power of Satan is how he's able to do that. And so Jesus hears this and in these next you know, verses here, he gives us kind of three different explanations of how crazy this sounds. Like, it's almost, yes, he's, yeah, he gets in their face. I mean, anytime you call someone a brood of vipers, that's not like a high five. Man, you guys are awesome. No, it's like a punch in the gut. Like, he's getting up in their face, but at the same time, I feel like Jesus' posture toward them is like, guys, come on. Listen to how crazy you're, you're speaking here. You're telling me that these good works are by the power of Satan? I mean, just think about what you're saying. And he gives us kind of three different explanations to kind of show 
how crazy this talk is. The first one we see there in verse 25, it's illogical. I mean, look what Jesus says. Knowing their thoughts, he told them this. Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. Look, guys, come on. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? I mean, this, this is absolutely illogical what you're saying. Satan is not going to attack his own troops. Like, it just, it doesn't work like that. If a, if a nation or a family or even a ball team right? If you've got a ball team and there's disunity in the core, if there's fighting, bickering, you know, backstabbing, all, no matter how talented they are, they're not going to work. It's not going to happen. They're not going to stand. They're going to get defeated. They'll get blown out, maybe get beat by Evansville. I don't know, right? He's saying like something's going on, right? It just doesn't work. And that's what Jesus is trying to help them see. It's just illogical. Satan is not going to attack his own troops. And not only is it illogical, but look what else he says here in verse 27, it's inconsistent. I mean, look what he says here. And if I drive out demons by the prince of demons, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. So in essence, what he's saying here is, look, look you've got guys that are doing the same thing I'm doing. And so if you're saying that I'm doing this by the power of Satan, then you need to stay consistent, right? You need to say the same thing about your own guys and what they're doing. So it's inconsistent for you to sit there and say, I'm doing this by the power of Satan because your guys are doing the same thing, but you're not calling it Satan work. You're inconsistent. So not only is it illogical, not only is it inconsistent, but look what he says here in verse 28 and 29. It's, it's just really bad theology. Look what he says here. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can plunder his house. So follow what Jesus is saying here. Look, guys, if, if I'm driving out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is upon you. Translation, if you're seeing the works of the kingdom before you, and the works of the kingdom is healings, People that are in disease situations get healed. People that have demons get cat. Their demons get capped. They're dead. They get raised to life. So you're seeing the evidence of the kingdom's work. And if that's what's happening here, then guess what the conclusion is? The king's here. If you're seeing signs of the kingdom, then that means King Jesus is here. You would not, let's say tonight someone breaks in your home, right? You're not going to send your two-year-old down there to take care of the thief, Right? Hopefully not, right? You might get called by the children's services if you did that, right? You're, why? Why are you not going to do that? Because he's not strong enough or she's not strong enough. Hopefully you or someone else or something else, right, a.k.a. a gun or, or bat, whatever, you're going to go down and deal with the thief, right? You're, you're bringing something that's stronger in order to deal with the thief. And that's what Jesus is trying to help him see. Look, if the strong man, meaning the devil, is getting tied up, then that means there's someone here that's stronger than he. And that someone is the king. Remember, when Jesus is doing all these miracles, remember what it means when it talks about the kingdom of God. When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, I can't even talk today, heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness 
restores sick creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. It is bad theology to look at the signs of the kingdom and say that's from the devil. If you're seeing the work that you know from the Old Testament of the kingdom at being on display, then the only conclusion is this, is that the king is here. And then, with this in mind, with that context, that's very important. We put this in mind, all right? That the religious leaders are looking at the work of God, the signs of the kingdom. They're looking, it's right there. And they're saying that's from the devil. With that in mind, then Jesus says this in verse 30. Anyone who's not with me is against me. Anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So what does this not mean first? This does not mean this, that if if any point in your life you have rejected Christ or you will reject Christ, it does not mean that you later on cannot be saved. You follow me? If at any point, or maybe, maybe you're still in that season right now where you are rejecting Christ, it does not mean that you cannot be saved later. That's what he's getting after here. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven them. Case in point, Peter Denies him three times. Ignores the work of God, ignores the spirit of God, ignores his promptings of God, and denies Jesus three times. And Peter's restored and actually becomes one of the leaders of our church. Paul, it's another one. This is not a story of someone that was ignorant, right? Who's God? What's going on? No, it's not a story of ignorance to belief. It's a story of someone that had hardened opposition toward Jesus and his followers. And Jesus came and changed his life. Think about you. I know for me, I rejected the gospel. I rejected Jesus a few times before it penetrated my heart and it changed me. And probably the same story for you also. So it cannot mean that at any point, if you reject Christ, then you cannot become a Christian later. But what does it mean? Well, remember context. It means this. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is to look at the good work that Jesus is doing and explaining and dismissing it as demonic. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's to look at the, the healings, the the all that he's doing that's a sign of the kingdom and say that its origin is not from God but its origin is from Satan it's to look at his good work and say that's demonic that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and it is the unpardonable sin one writer says it like this Jesus is warning against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring that it must be the devil's doing. If you do that, 
It is not just that you won't be forgiven. You can't be. Because you've just cut off the very channel along which the forgiveness would... You just cut off the very channel along which forgiveness would come. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, simply put, is this. is to see the work of the Spirit of which Jesus is doing and call it evil. That's a hardened, willful state of unbelief that we see displayed by these religious leaders. Now, to kind of close out this section, look, look what happens in verses 33 through 37. Sometimes if you've got your own Bible, you might have like a little uh, section he- heading, you know what I'm talking about, those little... I'm trying to find mine real quickly. You have these little section heads. This one was said, uh, a, a tree and its fruit. You know what I'm talking about here? Those little, they kind of mark off paragraphs. Those are not a part of the original language. In case you didn't know that, the, the, the original language of the letter was just all one letter. And so we came back and put those in there. And they're, it's not like it's wrong or bad. It's, it's actually kind of helpful for us sometimes as we're trying to make sense of what's going on here. However, what can happen is we can think that this is a separate unit that it doesn't relate to what's before, and that's not the case here. These last four verses relate to what is before, and it's actually kind of a conclusion to help us better understand what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Look what he says here in verse 33. So either make the, make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is thrown out, or, or, or tree is known by its fruit. So we, we get this, we understand this. So like, you know, if, if, you've, if you've got a, a tree and it's producing some apples and those apples are good, you're not going to look at the tree and say it's a bad tree. No, if it's got good fruit, like good apples, you're going to say, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good tree. If you've got bad apples, you know, even though you may not be able to see it, sometimes trees look kind of normal, but if you've got fruit that's bad, then what are you going to say? This tree is diseased, right? There's something wrong. It's kind of like what we experience in the fall. Like all the trees look the same. There are, you know, no leaves on them. So which ones are dead? We don't know, but here comes the spring, right? And pop, well, I guess that one's dead because it has no leaves on it. You know what I'm saying? That's got some kind of disease. So we get that. So follow what Jesus says here. Verse 34, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from the storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from the storeroom of evil. And so once again, guys, this is kind of a concluding statement here of what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying this, look, guys, you're looking at my good work, the work of the Spirit of God, the healing of this demon-possessed man, and you're calling it evil. You're looking at my fruit, good fruit, and saying my tree is diseased. It can't be like that. So if you see good fruit, then it has to be from a good tree. So if you're seeing the work of God in your midst, the fruit of that, then that means it comes from God. Like you're, you're, it's insane for you guys to say what you're saying. And this is why he ends here in verse 37. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people have to give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. So, so look, Sometimes we have a tendency to take this verse completely out of context. Remember, it's got to stay embedded in this context where he's talking about what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not saying this. 
He's not saying that on the day of judgment, you're going to stand before God and he's going to stream a video up of your entire life and you're going to hear every stupid thing that came out of your mouth, right? Like, that'd be terrifying, amen? There's a lot of dumb stuff that comes out of my mouth, sometimes from up here, unfortunately, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Yes, generally speaking, we need to pay attention to how we speak and what we say is a whole other sermon in itself. Proverbs teaches us all about that. But within this context, Jesus is saying this. He's trying to warn these religious leaders. He's not accusing them of this yet. He's not saying they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit yet. He's warning them, graciously warning them, that if they continue to use these careless words, and the careless words are, you're looking at the work of God and you're saying it's evil. If you continually speak those careless words, you will not be forgiven of this hardened position of opposition to me. He's helping them see like the reason why this is coming out is because there's evil within your heart. He's just trying to say, look, hear what you're saying. Examine what's going on in here. If you stay here, you stay in this position, it's not good. It's not good. One writer, I think, sums it up really well. He says this, referring to the religious leaders in this passage. For penance, they substitute hardening. For confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they're dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief and an adulterer and a murderer, there's hope. The message of the gospel may cause them to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a person has become hardened so that they have made up their mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to His pleading and warning voice, they have placed themselves on the road that leads to perdition. They have sinned the sin unto death. So the unpardonable sin is not suicide. I don't know where we got that. The unpardonable sin is not suicide. On day one, when you declare Jesus Lord, your sin not in part, but what's the song say, but in the whole in full is forgiven. Past, present, and future. Suicide is covered under the blood of Jesus. It is not the unpardonable sin. Sexual sin, including homosexuality, is not the unpardonable sin. It can be covered under the blood of Jesus. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And unfortunately, some of you that are divorced, when you come into the church, you feel like it is. You're avoided like the leprosy and whispered about. Yes, we want to be a community that has a high view of marriage, and we want to work really hard on our marriages. God values marriage in a very high degree, and we want to do the same here. But at the same time, we recognize we live in an Ecclesiastes world where things just don't work out like we thought they would work out. And there's a lot of confusion and a lot of messiness. And we want to be a church that steps into some of that confusion and messiness and understand that sometimes we're going to get it right and some of the times and probably most of the times we're going to get it wrong. But divorce is not the unpardonable sin. 
Nor is the rejection of Jesus momentarily. It's not. He still comes. He still offers. He still extends an invitation to you. Now granted, there's going to come a day when that will end. When he comes back or you die, that's it. That's why the writer of Hebrews says over and over, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. He just said it right here. Look, you can't stay on the fence forever with Jesus. There's no middle ground with him. He's a, he's a polarizing figure. You're either going to bow to him and say he is Lord or you're not. And this is the invitation to do that today. Not tomorrow, but today. The unpardonable sin is to look at the work of God, the Spirit of God that's right in front of you and say that's evil. That's wicked. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the unpardonable sin. So what are we to do with this? What are we to kind of make of this here? I think there's several applications, and I just want to kind of land on one today. Because um, I, I recognize, and I'm, all right, I'm making an assumption here. I may be off, but I'm making a massive assumption. I don't think any of us in this room are looking at the work of God and saying demonic, right? I don't, I don't think we have that kind of audacity. Most of us in this room would not look at a clear evidence of the work of God and say, that's Satan, <laughs> right? It's, it's like most of us, even if you don't even believe in the supernatural, like you would say, all right, something going on. Like you're kind of open, right? Like something happening here. Probably most of us in this room would not say it's demonic. However, there are many of us who see the work of God and it's obvious that it's the work of God and we're indifferent. We're calloused. We're cold. We're apathetic. There's a little parable in Matthew chapter 11 um, that we kind of skimmed over a few weeks ago because I just couldn't get into it. But it's in that little chapter where, um, where John the Baptist is doubting whether Jesus is the Messiah. He sends some of his buddies, hey, find out what's going on. Jesus sends word to him. And then he turns around and speaks to the crowd, and he, and he talks a little bit about John the Baptist and what a great man he is. And then he says this. He kind of gives this little parable in the middle of this chapter. It's very fascinating. He says, I, I, there's a, there's a, I want to share a parable with you to compare this generation to. In just case we forgot what it is, here's the little parable in verses 16 through 19. He said this, to what should I compare this generation? Here's what it's like. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to uh, other children. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, hey, he's a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, hey, look, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by our deeds. So when we read this, man, we're like, what in the world is he talking about? It's so confusing. It's so like, it's not anything about our experience. But in this time, when they first read this, they knew exactly what he's talking about. So whenever their family would go to the market, if you've ever been in the Middle East, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's like this big, huge thing. It's got all kinds of stuff they're selling. It's like a big farmer's market for us Americans, right? So that's kind of what, what he's got in mind. And so when they would go as a family, uh, the kids would get together and they would play games. And so the, the two games they would play is they would play a wedding game and a funeral game. And so they did this because these were the two big events in the Jewish family, and they were just basically emulating their parents. 
And so in the wedding game, the boys loved doing that one because they got to be the ones that led the procession, all right? In the funeral game, the girls loved to do that because they got to be the ones that led the procession. That's the whole idea. The wedding, we played a flute for you and you didn't dance. That's the wedding game that they would do. Uh, the funeral game, they sing a lament, you didn't mourn. That's the, the funeral game. So this is what would go on in the marketplace here. And so when Jesus says, hey, this is what this generation is compared to, he's not so much concerned about the kids that are playing. He's concerned about the kids that are not playing. So you've got a group of kids that are sitting there watching this game, and these kids are saying, hey, come play with us. And that seems so weird, doesn't it? It seems out of place, doesn't it? Because what kid is going to sit back when they're having fun and say, no, I won't play. I won't play. No, if they're friends or whatever, usually they're going to jump in and play the game because that's what kids do. And he's saying, look, here's what you're compared to. The work of God is happening in your midst. It's happening right now. John the Baptist came, and it's, it's evident that he's from God, and you look at him, and you call him a demon. I come doing the very opposite of what John is doing, and you call me a glutton, a drunkard, and a sinner, and a friend of a bunch of, you know, redneck outlaws, whatever it is. And so he's saying, look, the work of God is in the midst of you, and all you're doing is this. Indifferent, callous, apathy. And so maybe you're hearing, going, where, where, where is that in our life? Where, where is the work of God so evident? And I'm kind of like this. Where is, where is the work happening that's just clearly there? I mean, goodness gracious, if I, if I saw guy who was blind and mute and they instantly got healed i would be i would, I would see oh yeah that's the work of god where where is that today to where i'm indifferent lyle to where i'm callous where, where we see that well here's four romans one paul says this since what can be known about god is evident among them because god has shown it to them and what is this that he's shown them? For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Here's number one. Here's the work of God that is before us every single day. We live in Kentucky, thank God, and we get four seasons, amen? Thank God we don't live in a place like Texas where you only get one season. Nothing against Texas. I love you, Jordan and Charlotte. Glad you guys are here and not in that Texas state, whatever. But, you know, say, aren't you glad we live in a place where we have fall and, you know, we love the beginning part of winter, but then we're ready for spring and summer and we get to experience the very glory of God. Every morning when you wake up and you see the sunrise is evidence that God is at work. And here we are. Yeah, sunrise. Maybe our posture isn't like this, but it is inside. We're indifferent to it. Well, where's the work of God? There's the work of God. Every sunrise and sunset are not the same. They are a beautiful, magnificent display of how awesome and beautiful God is. We're sort of unmoved. Another place that we see the work of God is, is every time we gather here on Sundays, every single week that we gather together on Sundays is an evidence of the work of God in your life. You're here. 
You made it through six days, amen? Through diapers and craziness at home and stuff at work and school. I mean, all the chaos that goes on. Here we are. And it's by the work of God that we gather together every single Sunday and we confess our sins. Like, that's not normal, right? I don't know. Sometimes we feel like it's normal because we do it so often here. That is not normal. That is an evidence of the work of God in your life. Are you seeing it? I mean, we are all billboards of the grace of God. If it wasn't for the grace of God, none of us would be in this room. I mean, those billboards are not perfect. Yes, they've got paint peeling on it. They look kind of bad. They're not all sleek and nice and bright and shiny. But it, we are billboards of the grace of God. It's evidence of his work in our midst. And is your heart callous to that? Are you indifferent to that? Guys, it's a dangerous place to be, just as dangerous as the Pharisees sitting there seeing the Spirit of God at work and saying that's demonic. Every time we do a baptism service here, every time, that is putting on display the very work of God. From 10-year-old to an 80-year-old, doesn't matter. Sometimes I think we have a tendency, hey, you know, if we baptize a 50-year-old, that's a more miracle of God than baptizing a 10-year-old. Garbage. Garbage. Yes, I know they grew up in a Christian home, and thank God for that, but I'm here to tell you I've got four boys, and I can't change their hearts. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change their hearts. And so whenever they stand up here to confess Jesus as Lord, it's not because Lyle did a great job sharing the gospel and blah, 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 blah. No, it's a miracle of God that they stand up here and declare Jesus as Lord. That's the work of God in our midst. What's going on in you when you see that? Jesus is concerned. It's a dangerous place to be. This is a warning for you. Another way we see God's work, I mean, it's every year. We celebrate Christmas. Hallelujah, right? That's the greatest time of the year. I love it. 106.9, that's where you need to be. I'm dipping in a little bit. I'm going to be fully emerged after Thanksgiving, but I'm dipping in, dipping out, dipping in, dipping out, right? Might listen a little bit on the way home tonight, this afternoon. But what is Christmas? It's the incarnation of God. That's what this entire nation celebrates every year. So how do I know that God exists? Well, here's my answer. Jesus. I don't have to go through all the arguments. The reason why I know he exists is because God took on flesh. The incarnation, God came to dwell among us in his name is Jesus, and we celebrate it every single year, not just Christians, but all of us. And we go to 106.9, which is not a Christian radio station, which is thankful for that, whatever. And all throughout this month and a half, they sing Christian songs, most of them. Some of them are kind of weird and interesting, but most of them, right? It's the work of God in our midst, and my question for you, and I think, the question that Jesus is asking you, are you seeing this? And are you unmoved and indifferent to it? That's a really dangerous place to be.
Now, please hear me, man. I know some of you in this room have a very tender spirit. And whenever I speak kind of a word like this, man, you're immediately going, oh, gosh, man, I'm not, I don't feel something for him. I've been kind of this for a while. And what's wrong with me? And it can cause some really unhelpful uh, introspection that's not really good for you. So please hear me. I'm, I'm not probably talking to you, all right? There are seasons of dryness. That's the reality of living in a very fallen, broken world, in a fallen, broken body. And there are seasons uh, where your walk with Jesus will feel really, really dry. And maybe you're in that right now. Man, gosh, look, I'm not talking to you. Because the reality is this, is that you're, you're what Tim Keller calls, you're still rowing, right? Maybe the winds, the spirit are not hoisting your sail up and you're just going through the waters. And you're just like... I'm, I'm rowing, man. I'm going at it. I'm opening up the word. I'm, I'm coming here, engaging my heart. I'm asking God to do something in me. Help me see. Help me believe. Help me work. All this is being open. And sometimes you go through seasons. And guys, sometimes seasons can be years. So if that is you, man, just hear the kindness of God. Hey, you're okay. You are loved. Keep rowing. But some of us here, I'm concerned for. You're seeing plainly as the religious leaders are seeing the work of God. And you're just indifferent. You're callous. And that's what happens to people that live in an overchurched area. And if you're wondering if you live in an overchurched area, I want to say yes, you do. And just the things of God, just kind of like, and your posture is kind of like this. And things that excite you more is maybe UK basketball game, Ohio State football, University of Louisville. I'm not saying any of those are wrong, guys. I'm a huge Kentucky fan. But it sometimes concerns me when we gather together as a body and we're singing songs to Jesus. And a lot of us are like this. What's going on? What's going on? David said, sometimes I've got to command my soul to sing. Sometimes I'm not feeling it, but I've got to go for it. That's rowing. So if you're here today and you find yourself being indifferent to the evidence of God's work in your midst, then I just want to say, number one, confess it. I mean, we just read a psalm right in the beginning of our liturgy. As long as we hide it, we give it power. The way it loses its power is when we bring it to the light. So confess it. Say, here's where I'm at, Lord, and I don't want to be there. And not only confess it to the Lord, but you need to confess it to other brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're in a community group, which I hope you are, maybe this is where you start. If you feel comfortable and safe there, and say, hey, this is my spirit and I don't like it and I want to get it out in the open and the second thing I would encourage you to do is this is that you would begin to kind of open yourself to him and this is all I mean and maybe you know I keep doing this today because this is my, my posture for the day it really is what I'm really wanting I want this physical posture to be the posture of your heart that you would open yourself to him remembering that the harshest words that Jesus has for people in the Bible are those who are like this. 
are just so close and willfully willing to just stay in their unbelief. Like just, this is the, the people that he's most harshest with like this. Like this, when you're open, even if you're in the midst of unbelief or in the midst of like, I don't know, he's the most tender to. A smoldering wick he won't put out, a bruised reed he won't break. So open yourself to him. Pray and say, God, man, help me see you today. Have this posture throughout this week. Be tender to him. So as we come to take communion here, church, and that, this is one of those things we do every single week that can kind of get rote and mundane and blah, and we forget kind of what we're doing here. And so I'm just encouraging us as a body to slow down, reflect upon what we've just heard, and remember what we're partaking here. It's the bread of life. It's the bread of life here. We need him. Not just when we're dying or when we got saved as a young kid or whatever. We need him all the days of our life. And that's what this bread is representing. This is the body of Christ that's representing my need for him. And then we have the, the cup of juice or wine that symbolizes the blood of Jesus, which is a, just a reminder over and over that all of my sins have been covered completely and full by his blood. All of them. And so it can make my heart leap for joy to sing out to him. If you're not a Christian here today, and I just encourage you not to take this meal. It's how we do it. Break off a piece of bread off, dip in wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is always marked by twine. But if you're not a Christian, then our encouragement for you is to just take some time to step back there. We always got leaders in the back that would love to talk to you more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. So let's pray together. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.